afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to the first of this year's President's Lectures. Uh, I have a confession to make. Uh, I initiated this lecture series three years ago for very selfish reasons. I wanted opportunities each year to hear from our distinguished faculty about their fascinating work. And incidentally, I'm happy to be able to share this opportunity with lots of other people on campus. When I arrived in Princeton 17 years ago from a scientific research institute, one of the first things that struck me was the great benefit that all of us obtain from being in a place where we are studying and we're working and we're teaching in the presence of some of the most interesting minds of our time whose work is of seminal importance. But too seldom did I have the chance as a faculty member to hear from those outside my own department about that work. So when Professor of Economics and the Woodrow Wilson School, Alan Kruger, suggested that I sponsor a lecture series for our own faculty, his idea struck fertile ground indeed. Before uh, I introduce uh, Professor Morell, who is going to introduce this afternoon's speaker, I want to tell you very briefly about the two lectures that will follow this lecture. Beginning with Anthony Appiah, the Lawrence Rockefeller Professor of Philosophy and the University Center for Human Values, who will present a lecture concerning the ethics of identity on December the 10th. Marta Tienda, the During Professor in Demographic Studies and Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs, will discuss her current research on demography, inequality, and access to higher education on March the 3rd. What's everyone looking at? <laughs> well, I understand why that's so much more interesting than anything I'm saying. Having told you about those lectures, I hope all of you will save the dates. This, today's lecture, however, begins with Professor of Geosciences, Bess Ward, in part because Bess will take off in the not-too-distant future for Antarctica to continue the research that she will be telling us about today. I asked Francois Morel, the blank Professor of Geosciences, to introduce his colleague, but before turning the podium over to Francois, I would like to say a few words about him. Professor Morel served as director of the Parsons Laboratory at MIT before joining the Princeton faculty as a professor in the Department of Geosciences in 1994. He is currently the director of the Princeton Environmental Institute and the Center for Environmental Bioinorganic Chemistry. The main focus of Professor Morel's research is the interactions between aquatic microorganisms and their chemical milieu. He seeks to understand the biogeochemical cycles of elements, particularly trace elements, and their ecological consequences at the local and the global level. For instance, his research is helping to determine how rapidly mercury moves in the environment, is accumulated by fish, and ultimately ingested by humans. The results of this research, which was conducted for the Environmental Protection Agency, are critical to the design of a major U.S.-Canadian initiative to study the fate of mercury in the Great Lakes. Professor Morell is a fellow of the Geochemical Society and a recipient of the C.C. Patterson Medal of the Geochemical Society and a Guggenheim Fellow. He has served as an advisor on environmental issues to government committees, both in this country as well as in Europe, and to both private sector and nonprofit organizations. In his spare time, he is a member of the Princeton University Press's editorial board. His courses focus on environmental aqueous geochemistry, but his teaching encompasses environmental concerns more generally. For example, this semester, his graduate seminar is organized around the theme of the environment and the humanities and includes guests 
from the Departments of Philosophy, English, Religion, and History. Professor Moran. Difficult to follow. Thank you, President Tillman. It is my pleasure and honor to introduce the speaker of today's President's lecture, Professor Bess B. Ward. What the middle B stands for is not known to her closest friends and colleague. But I understand it is an actual name, not just a middle initial like Mr. Truman. Professor Ward was born in New York and grew up in Alabama. I've practiced this particular pronunciation before. <laughs> it's not easy. Neither of these experiences seem to have done lasting damage to a person. <laughs> she got a PhD from the University of Washington, then worked several years at the Scripps Institution for Oceanography in La Jolla, before serving for nearly 10 years on the faculty of the University of California, Santa Cruz. That early career up and down the West Coast also appears not to have affected her mind. <laughs> she joined the Princeton faculty in 1998 as a member of the Geoscience Department and the Princeton Environmental Institute. In both, she is my close and direct colleague. Professor Ward has focused her research on the nitrogen cycle of the oceans. Nitrogen, one of the most important elements for life, is transformed in complex ways several groups of poorly known and specialized microorganisms. These transformations control how much nitrogen is ultimately available to the plankton that grow in, this, in the sea, and thus how much fish can eat and multiply, and how much carbon dioxide gas can be stored in the abyss. That type of work is called biogeochemistry. You know what biochemistry is, a study of the chemical composition and transformations in living organisms, you know what geochemistry is, the study of the composition and transformations in the Earth. If bio is the modifier for geochemistry, then biochemistry is the study of the biological and chemical processes that govern transformation at the Earth's surface. This is the most common understanding. But I like the idea that geo is a middle modifier for biochemistry. Then biogeochemistry is the biochemistry of Earth as an organism. To carry out our studies and relate rates of nitrogen transformation to the identity of the organisms that affect them, Professor Ward has pioneered the use of molecular biology techniques in oceanography. For this seminal contribution, she received in 1997 the Evelyn Hutchinson Award of the American Society of Linology and Oceanography. I believe she's the youngest person ever to receive the award. She's the rare professor who regularly spends time in the laboratory working at the bench. Her entries in the autoclave logbook are always the earliest in the day. She also finds time to participate in oceanographic cruises from the nearby Chesapeake all the way to the Pacific and Indian Oceans. As you will hear, she also manages to organize research projects all the way down under in Antarctica, where she has found wonderful lakes to serve as test tubes. These multiple activities require remarkable organization. This is a quality she brings to the classroom, as the many sophomores who take ENV202 can and do testify. Despite all that, Bess is really a nice person. <laughs> it is my pleasure to give you Professor Bess Ward, gifted teacher, dedicated mentor, outstanding researcher, and wonderful colleague, who will talk about strange biogeochemistry bio of permanently ice-covered lakes in the dry valleys of Antarctica. Thank you both very much for those introductions. And it's a great honor to have been asked to give such a lecture, and it's wonderful to have the opportunity to do it. And so I appreciate all of you coming to listen as well. Now, Francoise, one of my closest colleagues, and has been the most important colleague for me here in the time that I've been at Princeton. And as you can guess, he's sometimes prone to give me advice. <laughs> and his advice for this lecture was that I should start by explaining the title. And he, sometimes his advice is very useful. Um, and so he's already explained one of the main words, but I realized that if I did explain the title to you, I would be giving you all the groundwork you need to understand the story I'm going to tell you. So that's what I'm going to do. 
In order to know that biochemistry is, biogeochemistry is strange, you have to know that, you have to think that you know what is normal. Right? And so if you think that you know how a normal, a, a system works when it's normal, then that's how you can tell that something is strange. But you also think that then you might be able to understand why it is strange and what makes it strange in, in light of what makes other systems normal. And that is, when you hear my story, we'll see that that has become a problem. But we know that something is very strange about these lakes. Biogeochemistry has been explained, and I just want to remind you that what it means in this system is that it refers to phenomena and processes that are not just biology, not just chemistry, not just geology, but you have to have them all. It's sort of greater than the sum of those parts. It wouldn't happen without all of them. <coughs> Permanently ice covered has a big effect on a lake. I want you to remember that it is a lake. There is water under this ice, but this is not your ice skating in the winter ice. This is four to five meters thick, and it's permanent. And the, the effect of that is two. Mainly, there is no interaction between the water and the atmosphere. Right? So there's no gas exchange. There's no reoxygenation of the surface layer by mixing with the atmosphere. So this, the chemistry that goes on in the water goes on and on and on, and eventually this kind of system will run down and become stable at some level that a system in exchange with the atmosphere would not. And the other kind of exchange with the atmosphere is that in these particular valleys in Antarctica, the wind blows at a great rate. And 40 to 60 knots is not unusual. But the lake water never feels it. So the lake is never mixed. So the water that's in the bottom is always in the bottom, and the water that's in the surface is always in the surface. And this is going to be really important to the chemistry of the system. Antarctica, you think of most likely as being permanently covered in snow and ice. And that's where the dry valleys are really unusual. There's about 4% of the whole continent that is not permanently covered in snow and ice. And most of that is in the dry valleys of the McMurdo region. And I'll show you some maps in a moment. And why should those areas be dry? Well, that has to do with that wind that I mentioned, because even though it's blasting down from the South Pole, it is, relatively speaking, warm. Now, when you're standing there in a 50-knot wind, you probably do not. I know that I did not think it was warm. But relatively speaking, it was, and it prevents the snow from accumulating. So it snows, and there are glaciers, but it does not accumulate. And so you'll actually see dirt in the dry valleys, which is a really unusual sight in Antarctica. So that was our laying the, the groundwork for the story I'm going to tell you. And these are the people who participated, for the most part, in the fieldwork that I'll be talking about on this, in this list from various places. My collaborator, um, my co-PI is in Maine. And a special thanks to John Priskew, who has worked at Lake Bonnie, the system I'm going to tell you about, for about 20 years. Every winter goes to Lake Bonnie. And I have not done that, but he's the one who originally twisted my arm to get involved in this research, so he's to blame. And this was the field group the last year or so that we were there. We were called the Bonnie Hoppers. Now, the lake I'm going to talk about is Lake Bonnie, and we hopped to and from the lake and to other lakes in our helicopter. So we were the Bonnie Hoppers. And that is first-rate Antarctic fashion. That's what the U.S. Antarctic program issues you so that you can deal with Antarctic conditions. And the big joke is it's a harsh continent. Okay. So what I'm going to do is tell you a mystery story. I know it's supposed to be a science talk, and it will be, but it's also a mystery story. And the mystery has to do with this Lake Bonnie. So I'm orienting you to the field site, which is the lake. And the lake has two parts the east lobe and the west lobe, and they're connected by this skinny little connection. It's skinny horizontally as well as vertically. The lake is fed by the Taylor Glacier, and the South Pole is somewhere up there. And the glacier flows, not so that you can see it, but the slight meltwater at the end of the glacier is the source of the water in the lake. And so the water imperceptibly fills in under the ice. Ice forms at the water-ice interface, <laughs> and then the ice sublimes. So that's the cycle of input and output of water in the lake. And the mystery is that there's something very strange about the nitrogen cycle in this lake. Now, you knew it was going to be about nitrogen, based on what Francois said. And the mystery is that the two lobes, although it's one lake, are very different. So we'll start with the normal one, which is the west lobe. And that's the one that's next to the glacier. Now. I'm not going to give you an entire lecture on the biogeochemistry of nitrogen, but when the nitrogen cycle is working in a lake like this, there's 
not very much nitrogen there. And the reason is that phytoplankton, the algae in the surface waters, need nitrogen, and so they snarf it up. So there's not very much nitrogen left dissolved in the surface water. We're talking about fixed nitrogen now, not N2. The atmosphere is full of that, and it does plants very little good. So we're talking about fixed nitrogen, in this case mainly nitrate. So there's rarely very much nitrate in the surface of any body of water, including the ocean. And then in this lake, there and in systems that are stratified like this one is because of no contact with the atmosphere and no wind mixing, there's no nitrate in the bottom water either because organisms that respire oxygen normally have run out of oxygen, right? It's not been replenished from the atmosphere or mixed down. And so their respiration as they uh, degrade the phytoplankton biomass that is formed in the surface and falls down uses up all the oxygen. And then the next thing the bacteria do when they run out of oxygen is they use nitrate to respire. So unlike people who are stuck with oxygen, they can use nitrate. So they use up all the nitrate. So in a normal stratified lake like this one, like West Lobe, there's very little nitrogen dissolved in the lake. There's very little nitrate, and there's never very much nitrous oxide. Because a normal body of water that might be in contact with the atmosphere, you could calculate how much nitrous oxide should be in that water in equilibrium with the atmosphere, and it's not very much, right? Because there's not very much nitrous oxide in the atmosphere. So that's the normal situation. And the way that we knew that the east slope was very abnormal was that there is way too much nitrous oxide, way too much nitrate. And the mystery is, why is it there? And that's why Francois referred to these lakes as test tubes, because two lobes of the same lake that behave very, very differently must tell you something about both the normal and the strange processes. So what we want to know is why. And to back off a little bit, why do we care about the nitrogen cycle of Lake Bonnie, right? I never wanted to go to Antarctica when John Fiske asked me to go. I never wanted to be that cold. <laughs> but it was a nitrogen cycle problem that I couldn't turn down. And the reason for this lake is that it is an, a model system, as I said, with the two lobes that are so different, same place. We think, we thought, the same chemistry initially. The, the thing that we think makes them different, which I'll talk about a good bit, is a fundamental process in the nitrogen cycle called denitrification, which refers to the taking of that fixed nitrogen, like nitrate, and making it into N2, which very few organisms can use. So you've sort of you've messed up the nitrogen budget as, as far as biology is concerned. And the process of denitrification, because of that transformation and the other intermediates that are involved in it, has a major effect on the global nitrogen budget, how much nitrogen is available for plant growth in both terrestrial and aquatic systems. Some of those intermediates that we'll talk about affect atmospheric chemistry directly, both in terms of ozone and greenhouse effects. And we think it could even have long-term effects in climate change because of the changing levels of those gases in the atmosphere. So it you know, gets to be a really global scale problem that maybe this lake in Antarctica can help us understand. So if we are able to understand what makes one side normal and one side strange, it's hoped that we will learn something fundamental about how the nitrogen cycle works. That's why it's worth going to the ends of the Earth to figure it out. And just to hammer on that home, that point of why the nitrogen cycle, um, the process denitrification is important, um, this is a cross-section of the atmosphere from the Earth going up. And our bacteria here are taking nitrate and making it into nitrogen gas, and that's the process of denitrification. And one of the intermediates is N2O which turns out to be a really potent greenhouse gas. In terms of molecule-for-molecule ability, radiative forcing in the lower atmosphere, it's like 200, 240 times more potent per molecule than CO2. It's a good thing there's not very much N2O in the atmosphere. But we don't know what really controls that. And part of it could be denitrification. And of course, you enhance denitrification via fertilization, adding nitrate. Everybody knows that that fertilizer ion. So it's important in the lower atmosphere for that. And in the upper atmosphere, nitrous oxide is involved in the catalytic destruction of ozone. And so, of course, you make and destroy ozone all the time. But it's that balance that's important. So it, the, the bacterial processes that occur on the surface of the Earth, both aquatically and terrestrially, are important to the global-scale nitrogen cycle. So here's our study site. We're homing in on it couple of pictures here. We're looking at the very ends of the Earth here, the South Pole. How many of you have visited Antarctica? 
And most of you went to the Palmer Peninsula side, probably. Michael's been to the South Pole. Well, this is the side that sticks up the farthest north. And this is the other side, the Ross Sea side. And that's where our study site is in the Taylor Valley, right there. And the Taylor Valley is one of the dry valleys of the McMurdo region, McMurdo being the big U.S. base there. And a lot of the geological um, features in the valley are named after people from Robert Falcon Scott's expedition, or else they named them after their colleagues. So it was that valley was first explored on the British Antarctic Expedition in 1910 to 1913. Lake Bonnie is named after actually a geology professor at Cambridge at the time. Taylor, who was the, the glacier at the end of the valley, which we'll see many more pictures of, was the geologist on Scott's expedition. This is a picture of the Taylor Valley. So here's the Taylor Glacier. We're just kind of an odd picture, but here's the South Pole over in that direction. Here's the Taylor Glacier. That's Lake Bonnie, looking down on it. And you can see that there are other glaciers that feed the valley. And there's a little string of lakes and all of them are weird. I don't have time to tell you about how they're all weird. But they're all really interesting chemically. I'm going to focus on Lake Bonnie. And so they're all fed by ephemeral streams that occur in the spring. But the main water input to Bonnie is from the Taylor Glacier. And that's just to remind you that it's a serious restriction, this little connection between the two lobes. Both lobes are about 40 meters deep in total. It's a good size depth, and the connection between them is 12 to 15, depending on where you start counting. And remember, there's about four meters of ice on top. Now, I want to show you in chemist terms what it was that was made the, the lake so weird. So the normal lake is the, the normal side is the west lobe, and here's what I mean by the distribution of nitrogen being strange. This is normal, that there's not very much nitrate up here. Now, I should orient you that this is what I call the oceanographer's view of the world. So this is a concentration axis. It'll be concentration amount, number, rate. This is a depth axis, and that's because oceanographers had to have a third one, a z-axis, down. So this is always depth. So the lake is about 40 meters deep. That's four meters of ice on top. There's no water there, so we can't have measurements in the ice. Well, we could, but we don't have the water measurements. So here's the nitrate profile in the west lobe. And there's not very much there. There's a little in the surface. But that's because there's enough light coming through the ice for there to be algae, photosynthetic phytoplankton. And they use up the nitrogen. And then it gets dark because not all that much light makes it through the ice. And in fact, I'm not showing you the oxygen distribution. But there is oxygen in surface water, and it disappears right about there. And the way that the nitrogen babe knows that there's no oxygen in this lake is that there's a lot of ammonium. Because the degradation of the phytoplankton takes the nitrogen that is in the phytoplankton and mineralizes it back to ammonium, and in the absence of oxygen, it stays as ammonium. It is not transformed back to nitrate. So this is a classic system, the kind of, of distribution you might see in the Cariaco Trench or the Black Sea or a lake in the late summer. This is a normal situation where you have a stratified oxygen on the surface and not in the deep water. And so you can immediately see that the east lobe is really different. It still has a lot of ammonium, and then not much in the surface layer, but it has a lot of nitrate, 120 or so micromolar nitrate, which is an incredible amount of nitrate. And the other thing that is extremely strange about the west lobe is the amount of nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide is laughing gas, right? And they used to call us the happy campers. <laughs> because and it was wrong because with a profile like this it does not diffuse out the top but that profile 40 micromolar that's 5,800 times what you would expect if it were in saturation with the atmosphere it is definitely a world record and it's huge now the west I didn't show you but it's like you know you wouldn't see it on that profile very little so there's definitely something very strange here and that huge amount of nitrous oxide is right there at that, in this interface region and below where the nitrate is also in excess. So the initial chemical measurements on this lake, which were probably 15 years ago or so, identified this as being extremely strange. And that's why I got involved, because it was a nitrogen mystery. So there's excess nitrogen in the deep water. This is the sort of setup of the mystery that we're going to try to solve. World record nitrous oxide concentrations. 
That tells us those two things alone told us that the nitrogen cycle was essentially dysfunctional. There were things not going on there that should have been in the east lobe. And the main thing is that denitrification, that transformation of nitrate to N2, is not happening where we think it should be. It's happening in the west lobe when the oxygen goes away. It's not happening in the east. Why? Well, this is the list of things I'm going to take you through that we tried to investigate to figure out why. The first question was, is there a biological reason that it's not happening? The easiest thing would be if there were no bacteria there that were capable of denitrification. That seems kind of obvious, but it was the first thing we wanted to check out. So we looked for the, the organisms themselves, tried to isolate the bugs. It's easy to isolate bacteria that can do this process, so we thought we'll try that in Antarctica, even if we have to grow them always at 4 degrees. No problem. There is water, right? It's, it's water, so it's between 0 and 4 degrees in that lake, or even as high as 6. So we tried to isolate the organisms and grow them in the lab, show that they could denitrify. And then we went after their DNA as well, so that doesn't involve plucking them out and making them live. That just means getting the, the material out of the water, extracting it, and asking if the right genes are there. So we're going to hit this from several different angles. And then if we find that the, that the bugs are there, we're going to ask if they're active. And we think they're not, right, because all that nitrogen is hanging around. But we're going to try and measure the denitrification rates and then see how those rates respond to these things that every other denitrification rate in every other system does. So denitrifiers require organic substrate for food. They require the nitrate for the respiratory substrate. Temperature and salinity are the fundamental variables of everything in water. And then if all those fail, that was what this project was about. All those had failed. We looked at trace elements. I'll talk a little bit about a couple of metals that are important in denitrification. Well, the first thing you had to do is get there, and that can be either very fun or very frustrating. So I won't belabor waiting for the weather to clear so that you can actually get to the continent. We're on the continent. We're going to take a helicopter out to Lake Bonnie, and I'm not sure you can see that, but this is a picture that I took all crammed into the back of the helicopter. With These are the two pilots. I'm looking out the front window, and that is a snowy day in McMurdo, the main base. Not a real nice day for flying, but usually it's gorgeous. I think this is the Royal Society range looking out over the ice, the Ross Sea, which is not permanently ice covered. Right? That's sea ice, seasonal. That's Castle Rock, which is a view from a helicopter, again, on the way out there. And there are two places. You think, I'm going to Antarctica, I'll be able to play in the snow, right? Well, there are two places that you can go skiing in McMurdo. This is one of them. See those little flags? That's a trail. It's really great. Never crowded. <laughs> and this is a spot that's actually in the valley neighboring the Taylor Valley that I wanted to show you because, of course, it, as I've already alluded, it's going to turn out that the flow of water and the flow of glaciers is important in feeding the lakes and the chemistry of the lakes. And this is a picture of, I think this is the right name, the VXD6 Ice Falls. It's named after a naval flying squadron, the whole kind of used to be under the control of the Navy. They used to do all the flying. And it's called an ice falls for obvious reasons. I hope you can see. Um, this is a fuzzy picture taken from a moving helicopter. But it looks sort of like a waterfall, right? And you get the sense of motion of the ice flowing down over these rocks on this ledge. But that's ice. So the glaciers move, and they do a very important transport of materials across the continent. Now we're coming into Lake Bonnie, and we're above Lake Bonnie, and this is the Hughes Glacier, and that's the Taylor Glacier. So we're way above it, and these are two of the glaciers that come down into the valley there. And now we're standing beside the Hughes Glacier, and I think that's the Rhone. I'm not sure. I have a book this thick of Antarctic place name. We can look these up. And that is the lake. That's the surface of Lake Bonnie, and that's the ice, and this is the dry valley part, right, the dirt. And that's the, the regal, or the little connection, into the west lobe. So we're looking down on the east lobe, ice surface. And now if we zoom around that little headland, we're looking down towards the west end of the west lobe. And that's the end of the Taylor Glacier. And for obvious reasons, it's called Blood Falls. So it's another falls, it's another evidence of the, the end of this glacier is melting and feeding the lake. And this is the ice surface of the lake. Another reason you don't go ice skating there is it's very rough. It's, the topography can be a meter or so high. So it's very rough. 
So you can see that there, the water, the glacier melting here, feeding this uh, lake, is bringing in stuff other than just water. It's dissolving the rock, minerals from the rock. So in order to get there, we always go out in helicopters, and the helicopters come and visit us and bring us gifts. And this one is making a delivery of a sling load there, which is always very exciting, especially if you're the one hooking it up under it as it takes off. But that's our little, this is very civilized. This is our little weather hut. We don't live there. <laughs> First, in order to do the research, you have to drill a hole through the ice. And this is totally non-trivial. This is four meters of ice. And you have as many one-meter drill bits as you would like. And I'm almost two meters tall, right? So it's twice as tall, twice as deep as I am tall. It's really hard to drill with a four-meter drill bit. So you drill with one meter at a time, and then you pull the thing out, put on the next bit, and you, with the four-meter one, right, you have to sort of fling it up there and catch it. Because you can't leave it in the hole because it will melt. And it'll stick forever. And I've been there and done that, too. <laughs> and then it took two days to drill the hole instead of, you know, half a day. So the first thing and very important thing is to drill a good hole. And then, and I'll show you the hole in a moment, then you come in with your weather port and you put that over the hole. So the hole is the very important first thing, and there's the hole in the ice. And that's about, you know, not quite a meter in diameter, and it's four meters deep, and I'm just looking down the hole. And every day you come back to that hole, and it's covered with ice. So you tip it out. It's only a few inches at overnight. And that's our lab. I told you this was sophisticated. This is our lab inside the weather port. That's our hole. Right? We just cut a hole in the bottom of the tent in order to be able to access it. Very nice tent. And this is our super clean sampling gear. So this is, I don't know how much money worth of Teflon tubing. 40 meters at least, right? To sample the bottom water. Sampling that. These are all the tubing tied up to our line, comes into this hood, which is a HEPA-filtered air system. So we have super clean air coming through this little fan here, down into the hood, and then blowing out at us so that we have super clean sampling. So that if we measure trace metals, we know that it was not us that we were measuring, it was the water. And then the excess water from filling all these bottles and things in the hood comes out here, and we collect it in this carboy. And we collect it because we have to take it home with us. You cannot dump it back in the lake. And that's because, say it came from 40 meters. You already know that the chemistry at 40 meters is really different from the chemistry at zero meters. And that's considered um, a waste. So you have to take everything back. Not just the lake water. And you take the lake water. <laughs> you take the lake water back with you to McMurdo and dump it in the ocean. Okay, so this is what we did. Our scientific, our, our biological investigations, we did pretty standard approaches to uh, isolating the organisms and seeing if they could denitrify. And sure enough, from almost from every depth that we tried, we got denitrifiers that liked it cold. So we we never warmed the water above four degrees. Brought it home, grew them in the refrigerator, isolated organisms that were capable of denitrification. So we could get them out of the lake. So that, that didn't really prove a whole lot because, uh, as every microbiologist knows, if you look hard enough, you can isolate, you can enrich for anything from anywhere. So then we wanted to know if, perchance, those bugs were actually important, present and important in the lake. So we used those organisms to make an assay by which we could identify individual cells of that very species in the lake. So we're going to go back and sample the lake and count them. And we did that with what is called an immunofluorescence assay. You basically make antibodies to the bacteria, and you make the antibodies glow in the dark. And then when you look at the sample under the microscope, this is not my picture, but that's what they look like. They glow in the dark with this beautiful green ring around them. And it's only your bugs, the ones that you isolated and you made an antibody to. So it's a very specific assay. So now we say we've got the bug that grows in the lab. We're going to ask if that bug is present in the lake. And these are the data that show that it is. So our second clue, first clue had to do with the nitrogen distributions, is that this organism, which we creatively called ELB17 because it was isolated from 17 meters in the east lobe, we know we isolated it, characterized it. It is of a genus called Marinobacter. 
that's a pretty generic name, but it implies an organism that likes a marine environment. And Lake Bonnier is very salty. didn't tell you that part, but it is very salty. So we counted them by immunofluorescence under the microscope. And the three black lines, so again, this is concentration and depth. The three black lines are three different occasions at which I sampled the lake and counted them. And ELB-17, our denitrifying strain, and there we did this for several of them, is not very abundant in the surface. Its abundance increases with depth. And if you remember where the nitrate was in this lobe, exactly where it was. So this organism's increase, organism's abundance increases in exactly the spot where it should be using the nitrate that is present. In the west lobe, it has a slightly different distribution. It's, again, not very abundant in the surface. It has a little maximum right here where there was just that little dollop of nitrate in the west lobe and not very much in the deep water. And this is a large scale, so my, my abundance is exaggerated. So that looks exactly like what you would expect the distribution of a denitrifying bacterium to be in both lobes of the lake, even though in the east lobe all the evidence is that it's not happy. And what was interesting was that I've done this kind of immunofluorescence in a lot of systems, and rarely is the bug that I isolate a significant portion of the natural population. I'll find it, but the fact that I can isolate it might mean that it's really not you know, a normal bug that would be happier growing in the lake if it'll grow in my hands in the lab. This one was up to 5% of the total number of bacteria there. So I, it seems like we isolated something that was a significant member of the population, and it was present. So we also characterized several of the isolates to ask, well, how well do they like living in the lake? You know, maybe they're just hanging out there doing nothing. So we did a bunch of cultures at a range of temperatures and a range of salinities. And this contour plot shows you where they were happiest, so the shortest generation time or the fastest growth rate is the red bit. And they really, really liked it at 12 degrees C and 35 parts per thousand salinity. Nothing like what the lake is. The lake is up there at 4 to 6 degrees and 80 or more parts per thousand. But the key thing is that it's not unusual for an organism that likes it cold to actually not quite like it as cold as its natural environment is. This bug died above 25, didn't grow at room temperature at all. It will grow there, very long generation time. It, its optimal was at 12 and much lower salinity. Now, 35 parts per thousand, that's like seawater. 80 is a lot saltier. So we decided that it was present, it could grow, it might not be very happy in the lake, but it definitely could grow at the conditions from which we isolated it. So the last part of the biological investigation was, what about its genes? So now we're going to go extract the DNA straight out of the water. That's extract DNA from the environment. Add rock to tube and shake. And this uh, slide I sold from Song. We used it for another purpose. But it works really well. So the first thing you do is get the DNA. Amplify specifically for the gene that you're interested in. And our gene that is a key gene, a key enzyme in the denitrification process is the one that takes nitrite to the next step. And that's one of the sets of intermediates that I've referred to. So we, clone, we amplify the DNA, not knowing whose it is, clone it so that we can sequence it. Sequence it mainly to figure out if we got the right thing. Is this really a gene that is involved in denitrification? And if it is, then we compare it to other genes that we know are involved in denitrification from other organisms. And then we can tell you about its evolutionary relationships with some of those other organisms. Now, this is a kind of picture that makes people get up and leave the room, and I won't blame you if you do. It's a phylogenetic tree, okay? It's hard to tell to show you DNA genes, right, data, but it's a tree, okay? And it just illustrates that we did get a bunch of these. And by the way, these are Chris Francis's data, who one of my postdocs who just went off to Stanford to be an assistant professor, and he did this in the last week that he was here. Incredible. He found nitrite reductase genes in samples that I had collected from both lobes of the lake. So the genetic capability is hanging out in the lake. And when he compared them to other nitrite reductase genes, other denitrifying genes that we had from organisms we could grow in the lab, some of them looked just like Marinobacter, genes that we had taken from Marinobacter, cultured Marinobacter. So now he's got the genes that look like they came from the same organism that we isolated from the lake. And the odd thing, and really interesting, which some of you can probably tell from the tree, was that there were only four or five different kinds of nitrite reductase. 
I don't mean anything to you, but I'm just, we're working in Chesapeake Bay, and there we have hundreds, literally hundreds of different kinds of nitrite reductase genes. Here there were four or five. So we think that tells us something about an extreme environment, right? Harsh continent. It's really hard to make a living there, and maybe there aren't very many different kinds of organisms that can handle it. But the important thing was that the nitrite reductase genes are present in Lake Bonnie. So for all the biological reasons, everything's there, right? The nitrifiers can be isolated from the lake. The strains that we have in the lab can survive under the conditions that they find in the lake. We go back and we look for them, and they're there. We did that for three different strains. I just showed you one. The genes that encode the ability to denitrify can be detected in the lake. I didn't show any depth distributions, but they were everywhere that they should have been. So what is the problem? <laughs> and believe me, my copi and I literally stand around trying to figure this out. Well, we've been through the biological reasons. Let's go to the next step and figure out what is happening in the lake. Let's actually just do some incubations, and this is what we did to measure how fast denitrification is or is not happening in both lobes of the lake. So we're going to try to measure the rates and, and consider these things that might actually affect the rate. And this involves hopping out to the lake in a helicopter, collecting the water through the clean system that I showed you, and putting it in these cute little bags. And that's a 500 ml bag that's about the size of your hand. It's a super bag because it's airtight and it's trace metal clean. So it's, it's the way to go to make these measurements. And you can see that we had a bunch of them. That's a refrigerator full. We also had large bags that held 10 liters, and we used those for the same kinds of incubations. And this is Julie Granger working in a glove box, an anaerobic glove box, inside a 12-degree cold room. Now, why do we do it at 12 degrees? Because when we grew them in the lab, that's what made them happy. Right? Their optimum growth temperature from that plot I showed was 12 degrees. And it, to go, to live it, to do, um, to measure a rate, we're going to have to do an incubation over time. And we're only on the ice for six to eight weeks. And if we had to do it at four degrees, we'd be like. <laughs> and so we did it at 12 degrees thinking they liked it in the lab. We'll speed things up just a little bit. Biology goes faster at higher temperatures. They will actually be able to measure something at 12 degrees. And it turns out that was a really important and perhaps not brilliant decision. So and actually, I neglected to say the way we're going to measure denitrification is by this thing called the acetylene block method. And the way that works is this is the entire pathway for denitrification that I keep referring to. And here are our big players, nitrate and nitrous oxide. And the bugs just take one form to another. And when they run out of nitrite, nitrite they, make, they use up the nitrite and so forth. And the enzyme that, that does each of these steps is critical, different enzyme for each step. And the enzyme that does that is called nitrous oxide reductase, another creative name. And if you add acetylene, you completely inhibit its activity because it thinks that acetylene is nitrous oxide. completely messes up the enzyme. And this is a very nice analytical tool because nitrous oxide then accumulates. Bug doesn't know that nitrous oxide isn't being turned into N2, and it keeps making nitrous oxide. So the rate at which it accumulates nitrous oxide is the rate of denitrification. And nitrous oxide can be easily measured on a gas chromatograph. So we made thousands of nitrous oxide measurements on the gas chromatograph at McMurdo. And this is my convention that you do get decent data sometimes. This is just, as I said, if you were going to measure the rate of denitrification, it would be the rate of increase of nitrous oxide over time. And this is the time course. It's about four or five days. And that's the amount of nitrous oxide that accumulated. And every now and then you get a nice line like that. And from that, you can calculate the rate. And so we did that many times. And these are the primary data that show you the distribution of the rate in the lake. So this is the west lobe. Depth again, and this is a denitrification rate in terms of nitrous oxide production in animals per hour. There's, these lines are the error bars, the coefficient, the 95% confidence interval around the slope of that line. So if the error bars intersect zero, the number is essentially zero. So there's no denitrification up here, just right where it starts to get anoxic. You get a little bit, your peak is at 16 meters, and there's none by the time you get to 25 meters. What does that look like? It looks a lot like the distribution of the bug, and it looks a lot like the distribution of nitrate. So this lake, we decided once more, was normal. That's the west lobe. 
And this one made us really sit up and take notice. This is the east lobe, and we expected nothing. We expected one of those, it's hard to publish a note, you know? But there wasn't any up there, but there was kind of a lot down here. It's not a very nice number, huge error bar, but both here and here, significantly greater than zero. So to our immense surprise, when we put the bugs in those bags and incubated them, they denitrified. Now we're really pulling our hair out. Because denitrification occurs in the west, but it also occurs in the east. It occurred in water that we incubated from the east slope. However, we know that nitrogen still accumulates in the east slope. It is not going anywhere. It doesn't change year to year. It hasn't changed for a long time. So we figured out, we've concluded at least, that denitrification happens in the bags, and we're not sure what it was about the bags that made them happier there than they were in the lake, but temperature is an obvious possibility. Right? Maybe there's something nasty about the lake that keeps them from denitrifying that is overcome by making them just that much happier at 12 degrees. So they're able to grow at 12 degrees, and they aren't able to grow at the in situ temperature of the lake. That's a hypothesis. We don't really know what it is that made that happen, but it's clear that there's still something wrong with the lake. It doesn't solve our, our big problem of why they don't do it in the lake itself. So the bottom line is that the bacteria are present, they're capable of activity, but they're just not doing it. And all of these things add up to an extremely mysterious situation. Well, we've sort of been there and done that on the biological reasons. Check that out. Did the measurements. Let's take a bigger picture and see if there's something else about the lake that can explain the chemistry. Maybe there's something really fundamentally different about the chemistry. Something of a longer and larger scale. Just to remind you of how different the chemistry is, this is both, this is all from the east lobe, but this is the weird chemistry and the depth distributions again. All that nitrous oxide. Now, I, I told you that the wind never mixed this lake, right? So the wind blows, but it's permanently ice covered, so it never mixes. So the only way that you're going to arrange molecules is molecular diffusion. And John Prisky made this measurement, and he calculated how long it would take to homogenize that distribution by molecular diffusion, and it was 50,000 years. So, been there a long time. And the lake has not been there anything like 50,000 years. So, this is a really stable situation. And something very odd about it. Now, our initial hypothesis that drove the most recent research that we've been doing and the next bit of research we're going to do is that it had something to do with trace metals. And we thought Mark Wells, my copi in Maine, has generated a lot of trace metal data, and I'm just going to show you tell you about the two that were weirdest and most interesting. And these are the profiles, and these are the essential results. So in the east lobe, copper was very low. The copper concentration was very low. And in the west lobe, it was high, reasonably high. Now, copper is required. You think of copper as being toxic as well, but copper is required for redox, oxidation reduction enzymes, including some that are involved in denitrification. So... It looks like there might not have been enough copper in the east lobe. And these are the ones, these are just the metals that vary dramatically between the two lobes. So we did all the other metals. These are the ones that looked different. Silver was very high, really high, six micromoles in the east lobe and really low in the west lobe. Silver. That's a biocide. That's been known as a bactericide for thousands of years. Use it to kill things. And the ratio of silver to copper is really high in the east, and it's just the opposite in the west. Now, those chemists in the audience are seeing the periodic table right now, right? And you're seeing copper with silver right under it. So it has the same electronic configuration as copper. This was not lost on us. And it led us to what is driving our next era of research here, the copper hypothesis. So we found some literature that addressed this interaction, this potential interaction between silver and copper. And in proteins which require copper in order to do their oxidation reduction chemistry, there are reported cases of silver being able to slip into that, that fit where copper usually fits, and silver can just fit, and it can be stable in there, but it really messes up the protein. The protein does not work. And so that happens at a, at a level of silver much lower than sort of general bactericidal activity. 
Nitrous oxide reductase, the one that takes nitrous oxide to N2, is a copper-requiring enzyme. Every denitrifier who deals with nitrous oxide has to have that enzyme. If it doesn't have copper, that enzyme doesn't work. Another enzyme earlier in the pathway that I showed you that entire pathway, nitrite reductase, comes in an iron form and also in a copper form. So it's possible that two of the fundamental enzymes that are required for the process are copper requiring, and always one of them is. So there was too much silver and not enough copper in the east slope, and lots of copper and not very much silver in the west slope. Things work in the west and not in the east. And so our hypothesis is that, not, that it's a specific interaction between silver and copper, which may be because it's just the silver is just so much more concentrated than the copper that it is displacing the copper from those enzymes. And the bugs are there. They make the enzyme, but it doesn't work. Why haven't they acclimated to that much silver? Well, that's our current hypothesis. But that still takes us back to, and so you'll have to come back next year for the next chapter on that. But that still doesn't explain how, even if that's true, even if it's a specific silver-copper interaction and it's too much silver in that lake, doesn't explain why you have this lake, two lobes have such different chemistries. Right? They're all fed from that water that comes in from the Taylor Glacier. How could they have such different chemistries? And this I rely on some colleagues who've worked in this area for quite a long time, real geochemists and, and geologists, who have worked out the, the recent history of the lake. And this is, again, Blood Falls, so you're uh, looking over West Lake Bonnie, so you see the clear indication that there is something going into the lake other than water. And this is up close to a registered technician who went with me the first year we were there, just for scale, so like 20, 30 feet high maybe. It varies from year to year, but it's just where the end of the glacier melts and it sort of dissolves a little bit of, of minerals from the rock underneath, and that's the stuff that slips in to the west lobe. It also carries stuff from far away. This is a springtime melt on the edge of the Taylor Glacier, and that's dirt. So that dirt was carried by the glacier as it came down from the polar plateau, and at some time, eons past, the wind must have blown up a ton of dust and layered it in there, and then snow came, and then more dust years later, and then snow, and so forth. So you have layers of dirt that are now carried from the plateau all the way down, and now the glacier is melting and dumping that stuff in Lake Bonnie. So there is a lot of stuff, in addition to water, coming into the west lobe of the lake. And the circulation pattern of the lake, and this is our simple cross-section, is the Taylor Glacier melting. And this is the ice cover, four-meter ice cover that goes all the way across. The glacial melt is freshwater, of course, for the most part, with some of that mineral and dirt in it. And there's a freshwater layer in both lakes, both lobes. And then the bottom is separated by that narrow connection, and you have salty deep water in both lobes. And so the way the circulation of the lake works is that the water comes in here, and it floats across, and there's these little tiny, tiny little weak gyres. I mean, there has to be a tiny amount of motion because you have an input. And that's the equation of continuity in oceanography, right? Everything got to go somewhere. You put it in the water, and it has to go somewhere. So there's a little bit of motion of water from here to here. But these two never see each other. And they're very salty and very dense, and they never mix, and they're never stirred. So about 3,000 years ago, there was a cold, dry period. And the dry valleys are always cold and dry. So what does a cold, dry period mean? Well, it means it was even colder and even drier. So there was less melt from the glacier. And it was dry, so that there was more sublimation from the ice cover. So you're putting in less water, and you're subliming more, so the water level of the lake goes down. So it decreased the level of the lake to the extent that eventually there was not enough flow from the west to the east to keep filling up the east. And it kept getting saltier and saltier in the east, and it was so salty that it didn't freeze. And that happens to lakes in the valleys today. There are a couple of lakes that are just so salty, they're sort of like mush, you know, like slush. They never really freeze. And the west didn't do that because it was still connected to the glacier, which was still driving a little bit of fresh water into the lake. So it maintained a fresh ice cover and stayed normal, and the east slope was exposed to the elements and continued to evaporate. And it got to at some point that it was a, in even a hypersaline pool. I mean, it was so salty that it didn't, couldn't freeze, and things started precipitating out. So they started forming minerals and salts and things just 
fell out of solution. And so that's a good way to alter the chemistry of the water. Because then even when you have a warm, wet period and you start filling it back up again, just adding water does not dissolve the salts back to the way they used to be. They don't just go back into solution and become the same ionic concentration. Some of those minerals never dissolve. So now we have an explanation for how we could historically have created a situation in which the chemistry of the deep water is now different. And it wasn't a biological process. It was a geological process. And it only took a few thousand years. But now we have this really stratified lake, and we'll never mix that up. And the chemical concentrations and chemical distributions of most of the major ions and metals are different in the two lobes. And so we think that's probably what's driving the biological and chemical parts uh, that are so strange. So the geochemical evidence is that the west and east lobes do have different histories. And those histories are reflected in the chemical composition of the water, which we first noticed when we looked at nitrogen, but it applies to a lot of the other chemistry as well. And in particular of interest that may have particular implications for the nitrogen cycle is this silver to copper ratio. And that means that the modern biogeochemistry that we observe today, the rate of denitrification or not, depends upon past climate change, right? Went from cold, dry to warm, wet, and so forth. And so we've managed to really alter the geochemistry and now in the modern day to have an important effect on the biology and the resulting chemistry. So we are hypothesizing I'm not going to tell you the solution to the mystery because I don't know it. We are hypothesizing that the solution is the copper hypothesis, and that's the next lead, and that's what we'll be working on in our next field season, which is about a year from now. And we're working also on some of the aspects of this in the laboratory, but I don't have time to tell you about that part. And so now we're back to, okay, what does that tell us about the nitrogen cycle in general, and why do we really care about denitrification in Lake Bonnie? Well, this gets back to the overall question of what controls denitrification of the global nitrogen budget. If we figured out that something about copper availability can influence denitrification in Lake Bonnie, maybe that could also be what contributes to control denitrification in other regions of the world, like the ocean and sediments and lakes. And we think that in Lake Bonnie, we're, well, the other part of the nitrogen budget, of course, is nitrous oxide, and I've told you why that was important on a global basis. Could it be that copper availability controls or contributes at least to control of the nitrous oxide flux and the rate of the nitrogen cycle transformation? Well, in Lake Bonnie, we're hypothesizing that it's the silver-copper ratio concentration that makes copper relatively unavailable. Right? If you have too much silver, it can crowd out the copper and displace it in the enzyme is our hypothesis. So it might be that particular chemical ratio in the lake, but in the ocean, it's not very much silver, but copper is almost always very tightly bound up with organic complexes. And in some parts of the ocean, it's so tightly bound with sulfur complexes that you can't even measure it using the standard methods. So these things could be controlling copper availability in wide parts of the globe, especially in parts of the ocean, which are known to be major sources of N2O. So the generality could be that copper could be important in the general global nitrogen cycle. And we learned from the lake that modern biogeochemistry depends on past climate change, and that makes it entirely possible that future climate change depends on modern biogeochemistry because of the supply and demand, supply and consumption of those trace gases that are so important in the atmosphere. And every oceanographic talk has to end with sunrise or sunset. And I'll be happy to take any of your questions. Thank you. I'm sure Professor Ward would be happy to answer questions. Yes. I was going to ask, the bacteria exist in the East Lobe that has the both that you predict has the silver instead of the copper in its enzyme. How would that then survive and mutate? Do you assume that the reason they're denitrifying bacteria is because they produce energy from that, and thus they can't produce energy from denitrification because the um, enzymes don't work? How can they hang out for all those years? Yeah, we wondered about that. And so one of the things that we did was not just measure denitrification, but we measured overall bacterial activity. And it's like, <laughs> it's really low, but it's there. 
And it's very cold, and everything is slow, and it's very salty. So one hypothesis that we entertained in all seriousness was that everything was just pickled. You know, they, they were just preserved. The cells are there. You can count them. You can get their DNA, but they're not doing anything. Well, the answer is that they are doing something. So I, I don't know. But I know they're there, right? I can isolate them so they're not dead. Their genes are intact. It's going to keep you awake at night. You, you were saying that the high silver copper ratio would inhibit the last step. So apparently there's lots of nitrogen oxide. Uh, so it looks like the other steps are not inhibited. But why would you see the high nitrate concentration if these steps are not really inhibited? Why does it back up at nitrate? Yeah, why do you still see so much nitrate? Well, I didn't show you, but you also see a lot of nitrite. 40 micromolar nitrite. So the whole thing is out of whack. So if... If it were normal bacterium, I'd say feedback inhibition. You know, the products accumulate, and so... It just backs up along the way, and you don't use the substrate. So at a very slow rate, maybe that's still what it is. Yes, I'm, I'm wondering what uh, source of electron donors are that drives the nitrification, and whether this is vertical trans in that supply that is continuity at the organic matter. Water. Yeah. Right. Okay. I've thought about a lot of these things. Um, so we plotted up the historical data of everything you could imagine that they've collected. And DOC, dissolved organic carbon, was the obvious thing. Well, there's plenty of it. There's way too much of it in the East compared to the West, which says that they're not using it. Right? They're using it in the West because it's normal. They're not using it in the East because they're inhibited for some reason. There's plenty of it. Another part of the story. What's going on in that connector body of water? Nitrogen-wise? I don't know. I don't know. We only measured the metals in two spots, one in the middle of the east and one in the middle of the west. And there is some historic data of metal measurements. So people have been visiting this lake for a long time. But there's no previous good metal data. Good metal concentration data are really hard to get and kind of a pain, as you saw from the, the lake there. The metal concentrations in general are pretty high in the lake, and we think that's mainly because they're coming in from blood falls and rocks and everything are dissolving. They're really rather high. But I don't know what they are in, in, in between. We haven't, we have not cored it, and we are very curious. Um, but to be honest, the reason we have not cored it is that if you take a sample and you bring it up, you will have dirt in the water column for the next 50,000 years. <laughs> and so then you have to go somewhere else and drill another hole and do, so we're going to be very careful about sampling the bottom of the lake. People have, it is not mud. Right? It is not totally anoxic sulfitic mud. It's, ox it's you know, sort of on that cusp, the nitrate cusp. So. Yeah. It does, you do have access to the moat in the summer. Yes, can I ask you a question? How, how much variation is there in the size of those lakes? Interannually? Yeah. You know, there's the glacier coming in, there's sublimation going up. I mean... Surely those yeah. happen at different rates in different years. That's true. Um, there's, a, there's a meter or so. It generally tends to go in longer scales like that. And right now, the lake level is rising. And so our sort of permanent, semi-permanent tents, you know, we're going to have to move up the shore. And you can also see, part of the reason that they know it has a, a history of that is you can see on the valley walls where the lake used to be. So it used to be higher and it used to be lower. But interannually... You know, a meter or so. But it's climate, very climate sensitive. Yeah. Yes. Well, obviously the lake is genetically isolated. And there's very little, obviously, gene flow is a real problem. And you obviously have very low rate of temporal evolution of nitrate. That's the only one we've looked at, yeah. Um, what would happen if you went to a mine that was silver mine? And ask if denitrifiers could persist there in the presence of high silver. Dollar by Joanne and Seth proposed that we do that. No, I don't know. Uh, you, yeah, you would think that they would adapt to different levels. Right. And if, and I guess, you know, people have asked me, well, if it's, why don't they grow faster at six degrees? They've always been present at six degrees. It's the same thing. There must be fundamental biochemical limits that they can just hang in there and 
and persist but can't overcome. And I don't know what the fundamental limits of biochemistry are. But six micromolar silver might be it. Young lead, but I mean, there right. must have been silver outflows in the yeah. That's right. formations were. That's right. We thought about, you know. Actually, right? Yeah. And we thought about, you know, precipitating the silver and making money out of it, but of course that's against the Antarctic Treaty. But yeah, that's, just, that's you know, where we have silver ores. Could be a possibility. Did you find any minerals in the blood fall? We haven't really analyzed those. We did have some nice tricks collecting rocks at various places, including blood falls, to run the metals on. And we know they'll be sky high. And, and the question would be the ratios. Yeah, so I, I don't know where the silver comes from. That's an excellent question. If there are no other questions, uh, I hope you will all join me in thanking uh, Professor Ward for a really fascinating <laughs>